Hey, I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Much of science journalism today has been reduced to quick stories which are light in the details and hide behind headlines that just exaggerate everything. Our goal is to change that. We want to report on breaking science news by actually explaining the methods, making sure you understand the background, and discussing the implications. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind... Questionable data. The unfolding saga of a high-profile paper retraction. And cold storage. Freezing worms with their memories intact. Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Thanks, Jesse. So, I'd like to start the story with a disclaimer, which is that this is a developing story. It is currently the evening of June 2nd, 2015. (laughs) More information on this story has been coming out for the last couple of weeks, and it continues to be released. So, we highly recommend a site called retractionwatch.com, which has been following... (laughs) That's an actual site. It just simply looks for papers that are retracted. That's awesome. And it's been following this story really closely. I first came across this story listening to one of my favorite podcasts, This American Life. They did a show in late April called The Incredible Rarity of Changing Your Mind. This show started, and I highly recommend it, by the way. It's an excellent episode, despite what we're about to talk about. The episode started with talking about the backfire effect. Have you heard of this, Jesse? I do not know what that is. So this is a phenomenon, which you've probably experienced before. And a phenomenon where individuals who hold, you know, deeply held, deeply seated beliefs, when they're presented with evidence to the contrary of their beliefs, they tend to hold those beliefs more strongly instead of evaluating the evidence. Right. That makes total sense. Right. We've all experienced this. We've probably all experienced this from both sides of the effect. (laughs) The uh, episode of This American Life asked, how do you overcome this? How do you genuinely change someone's mind on an issue that they really care about? The episode cited a study which was published in the journal Science, so one of the top scientific journals in the world, last December, December 2014. And it was called When Contact Changes Minds, an experiment on the transmission of support for gay equality. Ah, yes. Okay. So this study had two authors, Michael LaCour, who was a grad student at UCLA, and Donald Green, a professor at Columbia. They tried to track opinions of people in California before and after they talked to a canvasser who's promoting gay marriage issues. Okay. And of course, this was right around the whole time of Proposition 8 in California. Right. There was a voter who was opposed to gay marriage, and they talked to a canvasser. And before and after they had this contact with a canvasser, they took online surveys, which essentially gauged their opinion. Okay. And tried to track whether or not the canvasser was changing the voter's mind. Okay, so they, they sent out surveys to people, and then if they responded, they sent a canvasser to their door to actually talk to them, and then they got a follow-up survey. Yes, exactly. Okay. And the study was actually quite remarkable. They found there was, in fact, one way for canvassers to change people's minds. And there were sort of three key elements to this. First of all, they needed to engage in an honest discussion with the voter. It had to be a two-way street. Okay. Second of all, needed to listen to the voters' concerns and thoughts on the matter. And they needed to ask the voter more about how they felt instead of just preaching to them. Okay. And the third thing, which was particularly interesting, 
is the canvasser themselves needed to be gay. Oh, okay. Interesting. They had to have some sort of personal connection to it. And that was how they could really change most people's minds on it. Essentially, they saw a noticeable shift towards people's minds being changed and actually staying changed because they kept surveying them over time. Wow. And there's some great examples of these conversations in that episode of This American Life, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And you can actually hear an example of one of these conversations happening and how the canvassers, you know, use these techniques to try to listen to the voters and try to gauge their opinions and gauge their own personal uh, engagement with the issues and therefore change their minds. Once this study was published last December, the response was overwhelming. There was huge media coverage. Yeah, I bet. There was this episode of This American Life largely devoted to it. And there was one little problem to it. It might all be a lie. <laughs> Uh-oh. It, it might all be fake. So things at this point become a little convoluted, and it's tough to separate fact from fiction, <laughs> but we're going to do our best. This starts with the first step, which is replication. Like any good science, study results should be reproducible. Right. And a separate team of researchers set out to do just this. And when they started to try to replicate this research, they started by taking a really close look at the original data. Right. That makes sense. And they noticed some interesting irregularities. They noticed the data was perfect. <laughs> it was nearly a perfect normal distribution. So this means essentially what's commonly called a bell curve. Right. And it also nearly perfectly matched another national data set of opinions on gay marriage, which was from a few years earlier. Oh boy, that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign, but it's, you know, it's not, that's not deal breaking yet. And so they looked into it more. And one of the other things they did is they started trying to find people for their own online survey. Okay. And they couldn't find enough people. Hmm. So they figured to find the people they needed, they contacted the company which the original paper, this paper by Michael LaCour, had used and said, hey, how did you get all these people? Right. And the company said, we never did that. Uh-oh. So that's not good, too. And to top it off, the original paper, it, of course, acknowledged funding agencies that gave money to the original study. Yes. Upon further investigation, these, a couple of these funding agencies at least deny ever giving those grants. Oh boy, okay, so that's really suspicious. What do we know? We know that the canvassing by the pro-gay marriage canvassers did actually happen in California. Okay, yeah. We know that this graduate student showed these results, gave these names to the groups who were organizing the canvassing, but it appears the surveys might not have happened. And it leaves the real big question of where did the data in the paper actually come from? And I'm guessing people are jumping to the conclusion that it was fabricated. Well, we don't know. Essentially, the researchers who are trying to replicate the study contacted the second author on the paper, Donald Green. Right. He's the professor or the grad student? He's the professor, not the grad student. So okay. the grad student's the first author, Michael LaCour. Mm -hmm. Second author is Donald Green. Okay, so they, they contact Donald Green. And he looked into it and very quickly wrote a letter to the journal Science asking them to retract the paper. Oh, boy. Which is a dramatic move. I mean, having a retracted paper on your CV doesn't, doesn't look great. On May 28th, Science did just that. They retracted the paper. Shit. 
and ended up on retract what is it retractions.org or whatever Re- retraction watch yeah retraction watch. <laughs> retractionwatch.org yeah. uh just a few days ago uh michael lacour posted a response because <laughs> it says on the retraction very clearly he does not agree to this and the response refutes a number of but not all the ac- accusations his response is very long and it really very quickly goes into you know a statistical analysis of his data claiming it's not this, you know, perfect duplication, this national data set. Right. So he defends those claims, but he also admits that he destroyed the original survey data. Now, he says he did this in an effort to protect the privacy of participants. That's that's unusual. I, I think you wouldn't want to delete that. I think you wouldn't want to delete the original data. You may not yeah. keep identifying features on it yeah that's fine but you'd want to keep the original data not just have the statistics at the end of it yes and he also doesn't address the whole company claiming they never did the survey for him right or the supposedly falsified grant money and those are those are pretty big yeah those are those are pretty big accusations those are in fact probably the biggest accusations here yeah so this is a big example of science not going right well yeah i mean i would say this is a very good example of not science. Something posing as science that either is convoluted science or might not be science at all. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I'm a big believer. I'll, I'll often hear people, you know, go, oh, this uh, turned out this wasn't true and like science isn't always right. And I, I'm a firm believer that like the scientific method is pretty much the best way on the planet that we know of to find out how things are. And that the problem, the problem is not science. The problem is people. And in this case, I mean, that sounds like what's going on. Sure seems like it. I think the big question is what went wrong here, right? Shouldn't this have been caught? Because, yeah. I mean, like, for example, on our show, every week we've got two stories from peer-reviewed journals. Right. And science is definitely a peer-reviewed journal. And science is definitely a peer-reviewed journal. This article went through peer review. And our faith that we put in articles is in this peer review process, really. Yeah, that's usually the the hallmark of, oh, well, well it's got to be other people have looked at this who are also smart people. And they've gone, well, that's, that's, that's correct. I think, you know, we put a huge amount of faith in this. But I think peer review is probably very poorly equipped to deal with willful deception. I see. So th- they're more looking for, like, mistakes in judgment or jumping to conclusions that don't make yeah. sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, something I think a lot of people don't know about peer reviewers is they're not paid for what right. they do. You've peer These reviewed are, a paper, right? I, I've peer reviewed a paper, and you know it takes a lot of time. You know, I've also noticed some some pressure put on me by a journal <laughs> to get my review in as soon as possible. Right. Uh, I was given two weeks to do a review of a very complicated paper, uh, <laughs> and I had other things to do. Interesting. Uh, during those two weeks, I, just that's really interesting, right? Like you're asking a, a busy busy scientist to review something someone else's work um pro bono essentially yeah exactly so i think peer review is really good at finding mistakes that the original authors might not have even considered Mm -hmm. just taking another look at their methods from a different angle using fresh eyes on it and for that it does a really great job Mm -hmm. but for this it's really difficult to catch in the peer review process and that process is what most media coverage of this story i've seen is blaming but I think the blame should fall somewhere else. I think the blame for this should go to his co-author. Hmm. And most stories I've seen written about this have really praised him for like retracting it right away, which is good. But if your name is on a paper, yeah, it, that should never have been submitted unless he 
looked through the methods in detail and and it's clear that his co-author just didn't have an understanding of his own paper yeah unless there was some like serious manipulation on the part of that grad student who was the the primary author for it then like yeah yeah i totally agree i think you shouldn't have your name on something unless you can stand by what it what it says i absolutely agree yeah so uh, just uh, stepping back from where the blame should go if if this is you know fraud of some sort do you do you think that this is fraud i think this is really poor science at best Mm -hmm. and fraud at worst yeah and i'm not sure where it falls between those however it's a really good idea and it's a study that deserves to be done properly right i think i think it's an excellent excellent concept for a study and one that needs to happen well hopefully I mean, the fact that it's been done and now all of this controversy is surrounding it makes me feel as if it's very likely that some other folks are going to go, hey, well, let's do this for real now. Yeah. So there are some lessons here. Number one, (laughs) never blindly trust what you read, even if it's peer reviewed. And number two, always look for repetition. Yeah. Always look for results being replicated more than once. It's good. Pattern recognition is one of our strongest natural traits as humans. Exactly. Let's, Let's use it. So uh, many of us have heard the myth of what happened to Walt Disney after he died. Are you familiar with yeah, that? Yeah, he was frozen, right? Cryogenically frozen so he could like be resurrected some point in the future? Yeah, I mean, I gave the game away by saying myth. Um, it's not actually true. That, that You did get the myth correct, though. The, the common folktale is that after Walt Disney died, he was frozen um, so that he could be resurrected in the future and treated with more advanced medical technology. Maybe he was just predicting the making of the movie Frozen. That, that, is, that is also possible. So contrary to that popular belief, um, he was actually cremated a couple days after he died. But that's the first thing most people think of when they hear the word cryonics. And what, what cryonics is, is the process of freezing an animal, which includes a human, uh, to preserve them for thawing later. Um, usually when we talk about it in respect to humans, it's for medical reasons. The idea that if you have uh, some terminal illness, um, say cancer, we can freeze you for 50, 100, 1,000 years. Uh, and then after that period of time has elapsed, we can thaw you out and treat the disease with our crazy advanced medicine that we'll have at the time. And you can go in your merry way and live another, you know, 50, 100 years way off in the future. Now, I feel a little stupid for asking this. Has that ever happened? Have we have we ever done that to a human? No. Okay. Have we ever like have we tried it with a human? Oh yes. Oh, we have. Okay. There there are places where you can go and get yourself frozen. You can you can do that. You could pay a bunch of money and have yourself frozen today if you want. Um, but just a disclaimer: you will not wake up from that ever. Isn't that like suicide? At this point, yes. Um, but these businesses actually exist. They, they do actually exist. You can actually do that. It's, that's baffling. This is a real kind of fairy tale idea. Um, and it seems pretty far-fetched right now to us. But interestingly, there's a lot of animals that can already do this naturally. Some of us may have heard of uh, certain like fish and frogs that are able to like freeze in ice in the winter. And then when the ice thaws, they seem to magically come back to life and swim around or hop off on their merry way. Really? Yeah. 
Um, These are mostly like Arctic dwelling creatures, um, amphibians and Arctic fish are the most common ones. Okay, that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, they have built-in mechanisms to be able to do this. The study that I want to talk about today is a brand new study in which some researchers froze and then thawed a bunch of worms. They used a species of worm called C. elegans, which is a free-living, meaning not a parasite, transparent roundworm, which is known as a nematode. Uh, and they're about one millimeter in length. So really tiny little roundworms. Very tiny worms, yeah. yeah. Uh, they tend to live in soil in temperate climates. And most importantly for this study, they are not an organism that has the built-in mechanism to freeze and thaw and survive. Right. So if you just put one of them in the freezer and then take it out later, it will be dead when it thaws. Okay. Um, and that's critical because that's how humans are. If you put a human in the freezer until their heart stops beating... When you take them out later, they will not be alive anymore. So please, kids, do not try that at home. Been my experience so far. <laughs> I won't ask about the details. So first, the researchers trained these worms. Yes, they can actually be trained to move to specific areas when they smelled uh, benzaldehyde, which is a component of almond oil. It doesn't matter. It's just this chemical that they were trained as a trigger. When they smelled it, they would move to a specific place. So then... The researchers bathed them in this cryoprotectant solution and then put them into a deep freeze. A cryoprotectant solution? Cryoprotectant. Um, Okay. So if we break that word down, cryo and protectant. Um, Cryo is uh, freezing, low temperatures, protectant, something that protects. Protecting. So a cryoprotectant is a substance that is used to protect biological tissue from freezing damage. All right. Usually that comes from ice crystal formation. As you may know, if you put water in the freezer, when it turns into ice, it actually increases in size. Um, If you've ever frozen a a sealed bottle of liquid, um, you've probably noticed that it's either hugely bulged out or uh, popped. Ice crystals are sharp and grow bigger than the liquid that they came from. So you can imagine, um, since water is a huge component of our bodies, what might happen if all of that water was turned twice. Oh, it'll burst all your cells. It'll burst all of your cells, and there's absolutely no coming back from that, even if we do come up with advanced technology. If all your cells are are torn to shreds, there's just nothing that can be done. Yeah. So we use a cryoprotectant solution, and that's what they bathed the worms in. The creatures that I mentioned earlier, like Arctic fish, that can naturally withstand the freezing process in the wild, they actually produce cryoprotectants naturally. Whoa. Yeah, within their cells. What happened to the worms when they were thawed out? Well, pretty amazingly, they retained those memories of the training of reacting to that chemical. So after they'd been frozen, kept in cold storage for a bit, and then thawed out, they still moved to the same areas when they smelled that chemical. So they they retained that memory. So we're just checking whether or not these worms have, like, gone through some sort of life-altering trauma, really, is what we're checking for here. Exactly. I mean, like, that's obviously a hugely important point for humans for the possibility of using this on humans one day because you know it's one thing to freeze your body um, and bring that back to life but if you're effectively brain dead or you know perhaps better but still pretty brutal you have complete and total amnesia yeah um, and have none of your original memories it kind of begs the question like really what is the point is there any value to freezing yourself if you're not going to wake up you that's a very good point so this is definitely exciting as far as that goes that's awesome So one of the cool things is how they actually froze the worms without doing damage to them. 
they tried two methods of freezing them. Um, an older method, uh, which involves a small amount of the cryoprotectant and a really slow freeze and thaw cycle. So they slowly reduced the temperature of the worms, brought them down colder, 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 colder until they froze. Um, and the same thing for warming them back up. Uh, they also used a newer, more aggressive method. It's called vitrification. Um, vitrification uses more cryoprotectant, and it freezes and thaws so fast that ice crystals don't have time to form. Oh, so either do it really, really slow or really, really fast. Exactly. Interestingly, only about a third of the slow frozen worms survived. Oof, bad odds. But almost all of the vitrified ones did. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a way more successful method. But no matter how they were frozen, they all the survivor of the survivors, they all had the same memory retention, which is really good news because what that means is um, once we figure out a way to actually freeze humans without damaging all of our cells, um, it's pretty likely that our memories will be able to stay intact and our brains will hopefully remain functional afterwards. Okay, so that's awesome by the sounds of things, but how we know how to freeze worms. How do we freeze people? So that's a really good question, and it's something that we're still thinking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> with worms, we can just bathe them in this cryoprotectant solution, and they'll absorb some of it, and they'll absorb enough of it that we can freeze them and not cause that freezing damage. Right, because I assume it actually has to penetrate their cells, doesn't well, it? That's exactly it. It's got to actually get into those cells. L- with large human bodies, that's a much bigger problem. We can't just bathe ourselves in it. We'd actually have to pump it through our bloodstream. Oh, okay. Um, and the thing is, that's doable. We can lower our body temperature and then start to pump this stuff through our bloodstream and pretty much guarantee that it's going to get throughout our entire bodies, which is great as far as f- freezing us goes. But when it comes to thawing out, all of a sudden now, you've got to thaw out a human that has no critical oxygen bringing blood left in their veins. Right. Uh, and we just can't produce blood that quickly and we can't get that stuff out of our system really quickly. Right. So that's actually the bigger problem. We can get it, we can get the solution in, but we don't have a good way of getting it out. Organisms that can do this naturally, like the Arctic fish, um, mm-hmm. actually have it scripted on a cellular level. Right. It's it's built into their DNA. Um, right. Okay. And that's referred to as bottom up, um, bottom up freezing. Um, it's the idea that it's happening on this low cellular level, and then that as a whole helps the organism freeze properly. Um, what we are talking about doing with humans and what we did with the worms is top-down freezing, where we're, we're externally inducing that freeze and trying to protect the cells as we go from the outside. Um, and the bottom-up freezing is obviously way better because the cells can just produce that stuff naturally, it, it's all in there, and then it can be flushed out of the system by the body afterwards. I assume short of, you know, genetic engineering of human cells, that's not possible, though. Well... That was where a lot of people went, that idea that we could actually splice in genes to do the synthesis of the cryoprotectant inside of our cells. Really? But the problem with that is that the rest of our bodies aren't designed to handle it. This isn't like a small change where we can add the gene and then suddenly we can produce the thing. Mm-hmm. It would require huge changes to all of our systems. Right. Um, we just don't have the resources to suddenly produce a ton of like antifreeze proteins, right? Yeah. Um, our, our bodies just are not built to do that. Um, right. So uh, geneticists don't think that that's a possibility. Okay. Meaning we're stuck with the top-down method. But really, this study definitely lends itself towards the idea that the issues that we're going to hit are mechanical issues of getting the fluids that we need into or out of the body at the right time. 
Um, and obviously, well, we'll need to test this on larger organisms. It's a really positive result in terms of actually approaching being able to successfully chronically freeze a human and then revive them. That's incredible. That's it for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. You can find those at our website, doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed this week's adventure into science news. Check back next week and we'll have two more new and exciting stories for you. Before we go, we've got a quick favor to ask of you. If you've really been enjoying this show, you can actually do something for us. You can head on to iTunes and just rate the show or leave a really quick review. It takes 10 seconds once you're on the page. You just have to search Double Blind Science and it actually does us a huge favor in terms of getting exposure for our show and telling more people about the podcast. Or heck, just tell your friends. Exactly. Just tell your friends. <laughs> if you did see something in the news in the last little while that you'd like us to cover or talk about, um, a headline or a story that no one's explained clearly enough or that you think might have been misreported, uh, give us a shout by email. You can contact us at stories at doubleblindscience.com or our Twitter handle is at doubleblindsci. See you next week. See ya.